Welcome to the Berkeley Technology Law Podcast. Hello, and a warm welcome to all our listeners turning into the Berkeley Technology Law Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Yunfei Qiang. In this episode, we're venturing into the dynamic and contentious realm of generative AI and its collision course with copyright law. Generative AI is a cutting-edge form of artificial intelligence with the extraordinary ability to craft new content, be it visual art, text, videos, and even lines of code. With the remarkable capacity to create comes numerous intellectual property concerns, ranging from allegations of copyright infringement to the complex question of ownership over AI-generated works. At the heart of copyright law is the challenge of balancing the promotion of progress in art and science with the rights of copyright owners. The AI legal landscape is the hotbed for litigation. Artists, authors, music labels, and other copyright owners have all filed lawsuits against AI companies for using copyrighted works to train their models. Our journey today extends beyond just dissecting these legal challenges. We will explore the broader implications, the role of various stakeholders, and the future trajectory of policies in this space. What responsibilities do model developers have? How might the future of AI policy unfold? We're thrilled to have two distinguished guests to guide us through these questions, Heather Whitney and David Fan. Heather, an attorney at Morrison Forster, specializes in technology transactions and artificial intelligence. Her extensive background includes clerking for Judge D.M.P. Wood of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, being a Bigelow Fellow and lecturer in law at the University of Chicago Law School, a visiting researcher at Harvard Law School and a faculty affiliate at the Berkman Klang Center for Internet and Society. She was also an instructor for Harvard Law School's Copyright Acts course. Joining Heather is the Berkeley Law alum and former BTLG editor David Fan. His expertise in technology transactions and AI is complemented by a computer science degree from UC Berkeley. David advises clients at Morrison Forster on a range of technology and intellectual property matters, including generative AI and open source licensing issues. Prepare to dive deep into this enthralling discussion as we unravel the complex tapestry of AI and copyright law. Welcome, Heather and David, and want to thank you so much for joining us on the BTLJ podcast. I'm really excited to speak with you both about generative AI and sort of the challenges that this exciting new technology is bringing to copyright law. Yes, we're very excited to be here. Yeah, excited to be here. Awesome. To kick things off, I'm hoping we can kind of start by giving our listeners a brief explanation on the technology we're going to be talking about today. David, could you briefly introduce our listeners to generative AI and its significance in today's tech landscape? Yeah, definitely. So I always think, you know, when any new technology comes out, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of morphing it into what people want it to be. And it's important to understand like what actually was developed in this new wave of AI technology. So, you know, AI has been around for a while. 
Um, you know, we've seen it uh, in a variety of ways in existing technologies, like uh, something simple like a spam detection filter uh, in our email, um, or how you know major internet platforms serve ads uh, to users. Uh, that area of AI historically has been um, using something called supervised learning, where you have a lot of uh, you know data that's labeled, uh, it's given as an input, and it's ideally used to generate um, an output. For example, will this user click on this ad or not? Now, in the last year, especially with you know ChatGPT, um, Dolly, and you know all these new innovations. What was developed was two new things. One is a um, large language model powered by a transformer. Uh, what that essentially is, is a model that has the ability to predict language based off of training on large amounts of language. Um, so that's like a unique model architecture that was developed uh, recently. The second one is the ability to generate images or content uh, via prompts. And that was a new technology called the diffusion model. So it's really just these two new things, uh, the ability to kind of generate text based off of predictions and the ability to generate images uh, based off of prompts. And it's uh, as a result of two innovative new model architectures. And I also want to say like these model architectures aren't necessarily, you know, something that was developed this year either. Um, I think like the transformer model was developed by the Google team back in 2017. We're just recently starting to see the commercialization um, of that technology now where users are really getting access to these tools um, and be able to see the cool things that they're able to do with them. So really like, you know, AI, as it may have seen for a lot of us to be like a sudden explosion, really it's been this long historical development um, over many, many years. And we're really just starting to see the fruits of it right now. And you'll, you'll start to see that continue as well. Um, you know, the next 10 years that we have these new and exciting tools. And I think the other kind of key difference with these tools is they're starting to do things that, you know, typically we would expect someone in a, you know, fairly highly educated job or white collar job to do. Um, for example, like generating, you know, free form text uh, that displays some kind of logic and synthesis of information um, or an artist, for example, um, where, you know, you're working on content. Um, or a software engineer where you're you're wanting to generate specific code. So that's kind of the next, it's a, it's a paradigm shift in some sense where, um, you know, historically we've thought of automation in terms of, uh, you know, more, uh, you know, uh, automation of like a factory um, or of like certain jobs with a machine. But now we're starting to see that, um, you know, things that we, consider to be things that you develop in like a desk job, for example, those things can also be potentially automated as well. So that's kind of at a high level, the landscape of what it is now. And you can see why there's both a lot of excitement, a lot of fear, all over the place, um, you know, in reaction to this technology. Definitely with these two new processes kind of becoming more, more commercialized, as you said, more commonplace. Imagine that's where it starts to intersect with copyright law. And I'm wondering, Heather, if you could tell us from your perspective just some of the basics of that field of law so we can kind of ground the rest of our conversation on those principles and what's the purpose of copyright law? Yeah. So copyright law, so for, reader, uh, so for listeners who don't know, uh, sort of, I'm just going to assume don't know anything about copyright. 
there are two main intellectual property types that people think about when it comes to sort of like inventions and works, and that's patents and copyrights. Copyrights have to do with works of uh, original works of authorship, so not inventions, original works. And so the question is just what those works are and what works are covered. And there's a list uh, of those kinds of works. But in general, I think the way to think about it is copyright protects your interest in what is considered the protectable expression, the copyrightable expression that you have contributed to a work that you have created, right? So as an, like an easy example, is like a novel, right? You wrote the novel, there's a lot of choices that you made that were creative choices that, that show your creative expression in that work, and then that is protected. So, but not sort of high level ideas, um, which will end up being kind of relevant uh, when we talk later. But, but so think about Harry Potter, right? JK Rowling, tons of creative expression. Those parts are definitely protected. The idea of a boy wizard going to a magical school, not protected. Uh, that's not really creative expression. Uh, and so that's that's the high level of what's protected, original works of authorship. And then you get into the cases and the questions about what does that really mean in this context, which we can talk about if you want. Um, but that's I think that's good enough uh, to get us to get us going. And oh, for motivations. So in the United States, so different countries actually so have different uh, motivations for why they have copyright protection. The United States has taken uh, a distinctly utilitarian approach, which is to say that the reason that we provide these rights to people, copyrights, is because we believe that it actually results in a more, uh, so more good for more people uh, if we give those rights uh, for a limited period of time and then those things enter the public domain. Other countries have other values that also motivate why they have those rights and, and can explain why there are some differences between the rights in different countries, like this thing called moral rights. In some countries, particularly in Europe, the idea that your work expresses who you are, it's kind of this Hegelian concept of your personality and identity being in that work, is much more prevalent. And so there's much more of an idea that the law should be protecting you as an artist's ability to stop other people from sort of messing with your works uh, and modifying them in particular ways. So, but that's that's not so much a thing in the United States. We do have some protection, but that's it's pretty minor compared to other countries. So I would just think of it as we give these protections because we think that we're all better off by giving some protection than by not giving any protection. Okay. I want to focus in on something you said there about the concept of original authorship. This might be a kind of contentious question, but currently where is that line being drawn? Like certainly I don't think anyone would say if I took a photograph of a painting that someone else made that that's my original work. Yeah, so that's great. So there's a couple pieces there. So the first is what does original mean? And then there's a question of what does work of authorship mean? Original ends up meaning two things, right? One is that it was, you didn't copy it. So it's sort of original to you. Uh, and the other is that there is this modicum of creativity, this a little bit of your expression in the work. Those are the, those are the two requirements for a work to be original. Uh, an example, so there, so an example of where that's not met, right, is going to be a case where you may have made a choice that you might argue had some expression in it, uh, but it doesn't have enough to basically make it over that very little threshold. So putting something in alphabetical order, probably not going to be enough in most contexts because that's a really expected, not enough creativity kind of a thing. 
Um, but but most things other than that make the make the cut. When it comes to in a, a work of authorship, that's where there's been a lot of discussion right now in the generative AI space because there were two kinds of questions here. One had to do with the question of whether or not an AI can be an author. So, and then because it has to be a, a work of authorship, the question is who can be the author of that work of authorship? So that was one question. Uh, that ends up being not a particularly interesting question, but we can talk about it in a second. And then the other question is whether, what does it take for a human who thinks of themselves as an author of a work that they've created using these kinds of tools, what does it take for them to kind of get over the line and for that to be considered their work of authorship? So on the uh, AI as author piece, it's the Copyright Office has been very clear, the court, it's all very clear that an AI is not, uh, cannot be an author for purposes of copyright, right? You have to be a human. So we could say instead now that it's an original work of human authorship is what's required. So that's that's sort of done. I would be very surprised to see that change without some sort of legislative intervention. That piece is not that interesting. And in reality, it's not that interesting because most people are not trying to register works that were where they are going to say, no, this is like 100% made by an artificial intelligence, right? No one's saying that. They, they think that they are the copyright holder, uh, they are the author, and they are trying to get protection for their own work for their own benefit, right? So it's very rare that this happens. It's more like you just want to make a statement about AIs being authors. On the human side, that's where it really is very, very unclear what the answer is going to be. Right now, the Copyright Office has essentially taken the position that the delta between what you put in as an input and what the output is for these models uh, is not copyrightable because it was essentially authored by the uh, by the model, by the program that you're using. Uh, and so people are pushing back against this, and we can talk about a few a few cases where that's where that's happening. But that's the general position that they've taken. They are taking a, a notices. Uh, they basically published a, a notice where they were looking for people to give responses and sort of their feedback on the way that that works. And so maybe that will change. But it's been uh, I would be surprised to see them move very much on that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll also add like this is where kind of the understanding of copyright law and also the understanding of how the technology is used really you know meshes together because you know for example on that issue that Heather was talking about in terms of like who is the author or like what is that delta right to actually understand like how an engineer is using you know chat GPT to develop code and you know change, making certain changes or how an artist is using stable diffusion um, to basically generate images and what level of control do they have over those tools and how, you know, to analogize to things that people are familiar with today, um, that's where, you know, lawyers with the ability to both, you know, dive into the technology and the ability to kind of understand the law as well can really help navigate this space um, because it is, it is an evolving and um, challenging field. And like we see with any technology, there's a lot of different stakeholders, a lot of people with different interests. Um, so being able to understand like what's going on and how to represent those interests is like super important at this time. I want to touch on kind of your ending note there, David, about understanding more about the the technology at play here. As I understand, there's there's two main areas of contention here. There's the input and whether they are allowed to make use of copyrighted material there and the output, and that's a separate issue. Um, why don't we 
kind of go through those one at a time. Could we talk a little bit more about the input process? What does it look like? How do, we, how do you get these programs off the ground? How do they start functioning? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take even one more step back, like even before we even get to the input. I think there's basically three categories of um, you know, where potential risks can lie in terms of legal risks. First is in the training or the actual development of the model before it even reaches uh, a consumer. So, you know, with any type of AI model, um, there's the, a large training process that needs to happen beforehand, especially with, um, for example, large language models like ChatGPT. That training process can involve tons and tons of data. So, um, what you'll commonly see, you know, uh, for the initial versions of these large language models, you'll see, you know, them using data sets from a source called Common Crawl, which is, um, you know, a nonprofit that's basically crawled the web for 10 plus years, right, and gathered like text information from the internet. You'll see things like, you know, Wikipedia or Reddit, a little bit more human curated uh, data sets. So there's first the issue of, is the action of training itself uh, potentially infringing someone else's copyright as an unauthorized reproduction or unauthorized creation of you know derivative work in the model something like that so that's kind of number one the second thing is once you have this model now now you have you know both the user providing an input to the model and then the model generating an output so from the input input standpoint you know that's something that's you know within a you know, the user's control, right? Like, for example, if I wanted to generate, uh, you know, say, create an image that's really similar to Mickey Mouse, I could, you know, give an image of Mickey Mouse, and then maybe the model understands it in some ways, and then it generates, you know, another similar image of Mickey Mouse. So there's kind of the input as in, like, there's the user kind of directing infringing activity, and then there's the model generating potentially something that's an unauthorized copy as well. So, and then having understood that, like who's who has the ability to kind of control these various steps, right? Then that's where you know vendors and providers of these models will take steps to try to mitigate uh, the potential legal risks. How vast does the amount of data they need have to be? How comprehensive do they need? to be for a model to function? Yeah, so uh, a lot, <laughs> to put it in a very short, uh, like... <laughs> the technical word is... Yeah, it. like, at least in the initial, like, so maybe to take another step back, like, these, these new models have been called foundation models. And they're called foundation models because they're so generally trained that they have the ability to adapt to a variety of use cases. So like, just like, you know, you and me, we can learn, we have to learn like a wide variety of things, but then when we face like a new situation, we use our previous learning uh, to adapt to that new situation. It's not that we've seen that new situation and we have trained exactly on it. So, but in order to be able to do that, right, especially for something like language, you have to learn, you know, human language and also like, What's a question? What's an answer to a question? And in order to do that, um, you know, machines just learn in a very different way than people. You need, you know, millions of examples, basically. Billions. Billions, billions, billions. of examples. Large, yeah. The, a very large amount of examples. And 
ultimately like what the model is doing in its training process, it's predicting the next word or the next token basically, um, where it's, you're, you're giving it all these inputs, it's seeing like a first part of the input and it's trying to figure out what would most likely follow. And over billions and billions of, you know, uh, training over and over again, it eventually develops a uh, kind of a understanding of the relationship between words. And then using that somehow, and this is, I think, where a lot of the magic is. Magic happens and, you know, people aren't sure exactly why. But for some reason, when you get to some order of magnitude in training, then these models become generally adaptable, right? Where they seem to have understood or have like recognized some type of general relationship between you know what people want as an input and an output, and be able to do that you know without training on something very specific. So uh, you can see like it's a pretty complex task, and because of the complexity of the task, you need a lot of data, and that kind of feeds back into the legal issues where. Uh, you know, to create these, you know, truly revolutionary models, you need content from essentially everyone. Yeah, if you think about this as just another thing for, for listeners, imagine you have a computer program that no, has no, no knowledge of anything, right? Nothing, nothing. It's starting as a blank slate. And you are creating something that people can ask questions and it can actually produce answers that turn out to be uh, relevant in like a lot of cases. If you conceive of how much training data there has to be in order for there to be something that doesn't understand anything, right? But is able to, by merely predicting the next words, be able to create something like that is incredible, right? They were not, when they were creating these models originally, the idea was not, oh, I'm going to create this thing like a chat GPT tool where I can just like answer people's questions. The fact that it could do this is in some sense an emergent property that came out of the fact that what happens at a certain level of being able to predict. So it's just absolutely massive amounts of stuff, but it is also important of what David was saying is it does not, when we, the, the, the difficulty here is that we constantly use these sort of human words like understanding and training and learning and all of these things. But what we're talking about in this context is just a radically different thing than what we mean when we talk about a person learning, right? Or training or anything like that, right? This model, these models do not understand what they are generating, the outputs that they are generating. It is merely predicting the next things in a line. And to us, it looks like it has a lot of meaning because we're looking at something that looks like a person wrote it. But in reality, the the model itself, it's not, there's no meaning there, right? It's a, it is a very interesting thing uh, to think about, but that's, I think, important. And one of the reasons why sometimes you get these really weird outputs, things that are not true, uh, it does not understand. It is just generating predictions. And so it relies on its training data to understand what, what an appropriate prediction should be. And so it is completely dependent on that in order to sort of understand like what is it going to think is the next thing in, this in the line depends on what it was trained on. If it was trained on, you know, just Reddit, right? Imagine that there were billions and billions of pieces of Reddit, right? Its outputs and its belief about what would be next is like a dark, it's going to be dark, right? Because it's Reddit. But if it's using something different, like Wikipedia or happy places on the internet, you know, it would have a different view about what, what it would predict as the next thing, right? So this is why the training data matters uh, in terms of both its accuracy, but also in terms of sort of what are the values that are going to be articulated in those outputs because it is reflecting what it has been trained on. Yeah, and I think to, to add on to that, uh, 
one of the kind of initial use cases for ChatGPT, for example, was people trying to replicate search. And in my opinion, search is like the wrong way to think about these technologies. Like when we have a kind of a Google search, you have a large amount of indexed information and you're searching for something that matches, like it's retrieving information that, uh, you know, then it could output to you. Versus what these models are doing, like what Heather was saying, is they're all, they're generating predictions. It's not like there's some stored information, um, like fixed stored information that it's saying, okay, this is what you're looking for. I'm going to go retrieve it and then give it to you. It's more that the model has developed a sense of, you know, probabilities based off of, you know, an input and what it thinks should be the next likely word, you know, the maximal probability it will output that. So, and then it keeps doing that over and over again until it generates the response. So it's a much different framework in thinking about these things. It's not, you know, there's not like a set world of things. Um, and in some ways it is, I don't know, I, even though it is, it is tempting to like, it's always tempting to use human analogies because, you know, that's how we kind of relate and see and understand things. It is almost in a sense how you and I kind of think about things as well, right? Like we don't have, like in our minds, like a very set thing that we can go necessarily retrieve directly. Sometimes it's a mix of a lot of things, right? So um, in some ways it makes these uh, models, maybe that's, you know, why the models have, you know, they're able to generate things that we kind of expect humans to because it's, it's trained in a way to output what we would expect a human output. So I'm gathering from our conversation that these data sets for training are hugely important and require possibly incomprehensible amounts of data. And ideally you want some sort of human input. Uh, I know David, I think you mentioned open crawl earlier of looking for stuff on the internet to feed this model. Heather, how does that sort of implicate fair use if we're making use of copyrighted works to help train a model? Yeah, so this is this is the subject of lots of ongoing litigation. So to explain to the listeners, <clears throat> when you what does it really mean to have a copyright? Like what is copyright? It is, you can think of it, if you were in law school, as a bundle of these sticks of different rights that you get to have. And really when we talk about rights, it's more like a right to stop people from doing something versus a right for you to do something, right? So one of those rights is the right of reproduction, which means that you have the exclusive right to make reproductions of your work Another one is to uh, basically to make prepare derivative works, which derivative works are essentially uh, like spin-offs of the thing that you have currently made, right? So imagine that uh, any so fan fiction, right? Harry Potter fan fiction is an example of this. They're, the fan fiction is relying on some of the creative expression from J.K. Rowling, and then they've added their own to make these sort of fan versions of like what's going to happen after the end of the books or whatever. So those are two of the ones that are important. There's also about um, sort of pub, uh, transmitting and that sort of stuff, but let's just focus on these ones. So fair use is a affirmative defense that defendants put forward when they have otherwise violated one of the copyright holders exclusive rights with respect to their work. And they're basically saying, it's true that I did this thing, right? But it should be allowed. And the law has this concept of fair use because the idea is that, yeah, there are some cases and uh, there are different policy justifications for this. There are some cases where we actually kind of want to limit 
what the copyright holder can stop other people from doing because we think the goods out of that thing are sufficiently uh, big uh, that we should just let it happen, right? So that's what fair use is basically uh, doing. It is an affirmative defense when you've done something that would otherwise be infringing. And the way that it is looked at is there are a variety of, there's uh, four defined factors, uh, and then there can be additional factors that courts are, and juries can look at. Uh, to decide whether or not they want to say that a particular use is a fair use. So, in other words, that we're going to not hold this person liable as a copyright infringer because we think that it sort of meets these uh, requirements. So, when it comes to fair use in the question of training data, the question is, yeah, the question is basically, should the training of a model, depending on what the model is and depending on what it's doing, should our reproduction of people's copyrighted works without permission be permitted in the training process because we think that the value essentially that's coming out of creating that kind of model is sufficient that we should basically make an exception. And the fact that there, there's a couple of things about the massiveness of training data that kind of goes into the question about, about fair use. But, but one of the things that's important uh, that in, it depends on your understanding of the technology is are you creating copies? What is what is really happening there is you're creating copies in the training process in order for these models to understand just the relationships among words, right? So in most of these cases, the idea that the creative expression, the part of a work that really is protected by copyright is not really what it's aiming for. It's really aiming for a huge amount of training data in order to learn across all training data, basically to be able to predict well what should come out next. Right, so that goes into what's be the basically what is really being used from these works, um, and another piece that is relevant. And we could go through all of these, but one of the big questions in fair use ends up being whether or not the use is uh, the character of the use, whether or not it is transformative, uh, and in the Supreme Court's uh, recent decision in the Warhol case. Uh, also mentioning that in certain situations, the commerciality can also be more important than perhaps it was in the past, um, particularly when it is neither transformative, it, so it's not transformative, and on top of that, it is a commercial use. In this case, most people, uh, certainly in this area, take the position that the, mo the use and the purpose and character of the use in the, in the context of creating and training general LLMs, and other tools is transformative because you look at what you're talking about, right? Like somebody's random post on Reddit or someone's a picture that they posted on the internet. And you compare what that thing is with the absolutely radically new thing that you have now created, which is this you know, very sophisticated prediction model. Uh, and they say that that is transformative. And there are examples that people throw out of other cases where you have these new kinds of technology uh, and they're using other people's uh, copyrighted content in order to, as part of that new technology, and saying that it is also transformative. So there are a bunch of different factors that basically come into this. Uh, a couple that matter the most are, like I said, transformativeness, uh, the effects on the market, which we can also talk about if you would like. Um, but that's that's sort of what's happening right now in a bunch of litigation is whether or not that that fair use uh, affirmative defense is going to is going to work. So kind of taking those lawsuits into consideration, it, it seems like it, if I understand you right, that it might be considered transformative, but 
in the hypothetical where it's not and they're barred from using copyrighted works, what kind of alternatives are they left with for training data? So you can, so there are examples, right? So Adobe Firefly was trained, uh, they have said that that was only trained on either things that are in the public domain, which means that there's the copy, the copyright is not an issue because uh, it's, yeah, it's public domain uh, and works where they actually got affirmative licenses from the copyright holders. Really, in that case, my understanding is that they, they have a very, very, very broad uh, set of rights to use the user's images that they give for their stock photo uh, marketplace. And so, which included the right for them, for Adobe to actually use those in order to train. And so it is possible to use, uh, to create a generative AI model without using, um, basically works without authorization. Uh, whether or not the quality is gonna be the same of that model is something that is is discussed. I think the general consensus was that the that Firefly was not as good as say, you know, uh, the other options that were out there that were trained on much more data, including data that people uh, probably didn't have authorization to use. Uh, but but that's that is the other option. Um, and that is and then another possibility is that moving forward, that as the technology continues to advance, it may also be the case that in the future you just need a lot less training data uh, because it's just gotten but they've gotten better at making models more efficiently. So there are a couple of different things that can play in what we will see, I think, in the future in that space. Yeah, I think uh, another uh, way to think about it is um, it's not it's the 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 question isn't really what's the alternative to copyrighted works. It's more uh, if this is infringement, you would need a license, basically, right? You still want to use the same content. You would need a license to it or you'd have to use things where copyright protection is expired, which is the public domain. Um, another interesting thing to think about is as more people use generative, generative AI models to create content and that content's on the internet and that content may not be you know, protectable by copyright because it's AI generated or it's some mesh of it, right? Like forward looking, there could be a lot of new content on the internet that is actually AI generated, and then people might use that to train an AI model, and that will have like future, you know, other ramifications going forward. Uh, but it's something interesting to think about now, like as we kind of adopt more of these models to ultimately create the content that may be used to train it in the future. What does that mean? And you can also think about so the question about this licensing issue, right? If you think about it, it's actually a very hard collective action problem. And, and you, in many cases, fair use is really designed to sort of deal with these kinds of problems. But if you want to train on every random post on the internet, right, because it's really helpful for being able to predict if you can just have this, just basically an unlimited amount of data. It's the idea of being able to get a license from each person for each random thing that they have posted on the internet is effectively impossible, right? It's just not, you cannot go out there and find that. It's not, it's not a doable thing. And so the, you need something to step in if you, if you want to allow for that kind of, you want people to be able to have the ability to train on that kind of stuff. Either you're going to have to have a fair use sort of exception, or there has to be some very radical change, big change in how you are able to gather people together in order for them to sort of license their material, you know, the endless amount of crap that you posted on the internet, right? 
So that's that's that is one of the main challenges in in this space is that we each have just a little bit of stuff on the internet relative to everyone else, but having all of it together is very useful for for the development of these kinds of models. Yeah, and I think that also relates to like for the recent ongoing lawsuits, like who are the parties actually suing? They tend to be, you know, parties that are either aggregating a lot of, you know, individuals like an author's guild, for example, um, or you know, large uh, copyright holders with, you know, very valuable proprietary copyright content sets like Getty, for example. So uh, there, there is that, there's definitely that collective action problem. And the people that are raising the issue now are the people who either have enough of this content and like revenue to bring these claims um, or some like uh, joint interest where you have to, or someone's representing like a lot of people. David, I want to go back for a second to something you were talking about a couple minutes ago, um, something you mentioned about how these outputs um, from the models can now be out there. I, I think I came across something related to that concept called synthetic data. Is that something you could maybe speak to a little bit? Yeah, so synthetic data is just a way of saying computer-generated data that's used for training an AI model. So typically, you want to use data that's collected from the real world, right? Like, uh, for example, from real world interactions. And theoretically, like what an AI model is doing is it's understanding like the statistical properties within that data set. So what synthetic data is trying to do is, you know, if I don't have necessary rights to that data, or there's some kind of, um, you know, privacy considerations, um, or there's just not enough of this data, right? We need to fill in a gap. Um, the only way to kind of generate that is to have a computer also understand the statistical representation of what the real world data is and then generate new data based off of that, uh, hoping that it will reflect what the real world actually is. Um, so that's what <laughs> synthetic data is. It's basically uh, you know, when I don't have enough training data or I can't obtain it, how do I generate something, um, you know, to create that? And the interesting thing is there are use cases of these generative AI models creating synthetic data as well, um, because, you know, they can be used, especially like text data, right? Like instead of having someone, you know, review and write, you know, all of these things over and over again, or create like a really complex model to do this, you can kind of have a large language model uh, take the role of like someone that's evaluating uh, these outputs uh, if they're potentially used as like synthetic data to train another model. Yeah, and I'll just say one more thing because I think the synthetic training data thing is super interesting. Um, but the you can see that there's a little bit, I think it's very important when people talk about synthetic data as a solution to identify what problems you think the synthetic data is solving. Because one of the issues with synthetic data, right, is in order for the model, for some, for order, in order for anybody to make fake data, right, synthetic data, you are already using some ground truth that you have decided on about what the world looks like or whatever it is that you want is supposed to look like. And now you're just sort of making it play out with lots more examples, right? So if, as an example, right, say that I'm doing a research experiment and I'm going out there and I wanna know, my, my, my research is on what people, public opinion on a certain topic, right? And I'm like lazy. 
So I go out there and I get it from, I get sort of interviews with, I don't know, 20 people. Uh, but my project is supposed to be uh, understanding what the city of San Francisco thinks about this topic. So what I can do is I can say, oh yes, well, I already have these 20 examples. So I'm just gonna generate uh, basically the all of San Francisco based on those 20 examples. But of course, the idea that those are gonna be representative, the whole point of getting lots of different actual people to give you their information is because it might turn out that people have very different views in different areas, right? And that different, and that you would not collect that, you would not see that if you only looked at a very narrow neighborhood, right? And so that is also the problem with synthetic data is, is the sample, the set that you're using as your seed in order to create this data, is that already representative of the thing that it ought to be representative of? Uh, because it's not going to magically cover things that it's not already represented in that data. So that, so the privacy thing can make sense because you can take out certain kinds of personally identifiable information and then create data. But in other areas about sort of representing the world, it's not, it's not going to do what, what people um, sometimes seem to think that it's going to do. So it's interesting to note that that's not really going to be a, a silver bullet solution here. But I was wondering what your guys' take would be based on the number of models that are already out there that have been trained using copyrighted data isn't it a little like too late to solve this problem of litigation isn't it too late to sort of put the toothpaste back in the tube <laughs> if they decided that you weren't allowed to use copyrighted materials as part of training data even if you were to use synthetic data isn't that partially coming from already copyrighted material at this point so on that on that so there's so the two pieces so on the the latter piece which is about using synthetic data instead of real you know basically or whatever organic data one of the reasons that you might think that that would be that would be safer from a copyright perspective is that you might think that there's a it's a different fair use analysis if i'm taking your content and then i am using it to generate synthetic data that's further removed from your content and then i'm using that to train the model right and so that might be for a variety of reasons a better fair use argument than just saying i'm going to use your exact data in order to directly train the model so that that could have some influence um, in the end of the day, I think it just depends on what the, yeah, the relationship between the synthetic data and the data that you're talking about um, and whether it actually has a copyrightable expression in it at all anyways. So, but that's like a whole thing. Um, but on terms of like putting the genie back in the bottle, all this kind of stuff, I think that the, the biggest challenge with this whole, yeah, putting it back is the open source part because you already have these ver like stable diffusion model rights that are out there that people can use. I have like versions on my computer, right? And so that's already out in the world um, with weights, these biases that are, are, are created because of the training that it did on these materials. And so you're not gonna be able to ever sort of get all those things to be deleted off of every computer, you know, across the universe, right? But when it comes to the most powerful models going forward, right, those are things that are not necessarily shared. They're not open sourced. All of them are not open source. So it's easier to stop people at that level. But the open source thing does prevent presents a big challenge. Um, yeah, that yeah, cannot be completely solved, I think. So so in some sense, yes, there's no way that you're going to get back that stuff. Um, and but there are plenty of reasons to think that you have the ability, right, as a government to stop people from doing things on a go forward basis, making new stuff. Um, and so that's, there's, it would just have a longer time to sort of go into, I think, to make a big difference in what people were using. Yeah, like, I think another way to think about it is, 
the core reason probably why people are bringing these cases now is ultimately I think an economic reason uh, where we're trying to figure out what is this new market look like between people who uh, you know create the content originally and are the copyright owners of that content versus the people that need that content to train uh, these new models that are used for a variety of different things and in some ways like uh, whether the genie can be put back in the bottle uh, is uh, doesn't matter as much for that question because it's about you know maybe there's some you know compensation that didn't occur before and through this litigation process we can achieve some level of compensation and then set a new model going forward um, or like if I kind of if, if I you know just thinking about from a plaintiff's perspective like if I ultimately achieve the result of this is not fair use, then I can go out and issue a bunch of injunctions for, you know, future, uh, you know, models that basically kind of fall into the same situa situation to then kind of enforce uh, my rights, uh, you know, on a going forward basis. So yes, there is probably a lot of, you know, harm that's done already that can be put back in the bottle. Um, but you can also see this is why these cases are so important, right? Because they literally will define, uh, you know, what you can or cannot do on a going forward basis and kind of the incentives of the different, uh, you know, actors within the space. I think that the compensation thing is super interesting and important and something that people should sort of think through these positions. So a lot of the discussion and a lot of the, the you know, outrage in different communities about the use of their materials without uh, without their permission is because they think that they should be compensated when their works are used as training data. And because and so that's that is the position. And so the question that I that I find sort of needs to be asked is how much money are you going to get for your materials that are used as training data when you know that it takes billions and billions and billions of pieces of training data in order to train a single model? How much money does each person get for their one contribution is like in any situation is like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction or a fraction of a penny. Right. And so it's not clear to me that the real the thing that people are concerned about, which is that they think that they should be compensated, is actually solved meaningfully by actually creating any sort of compensation regime because you're going to get like no real money from it. Um, and there are already problems that we have today with the kinds of licensing regimes that we have where people are giving their images over to a Gettys and that kind of thing about how little money they get from that licensing either. And that's when people are licensing their stuff for like actually using the expression, right? Here we're talking about using one one thing and a billions and billions basically to understand relations between words or whatever, between concepts in them, right? So it's not... I just think people who are, are concerned about compensation for, for artists or for anybody whose data is used to think about what that compensation model really is supposed to look like and whether or not it is really compensating people in anything but a symbolic way and whether or not if it, all that we really get out of it is some sort of symbolic, yeah, some sort of symbolism, uh, that is it really worth that? because there are costs associated with having a licensing regime or a forced licensing, which is that only some players are gonna have the money to, to pay that, right? And that which means that you're gonna have less entities that are able to create new models. Uh, and then you're gonna say that the same kinds of bigger players being able to do it. And so people who are concerned about 
uh, or want there to be a diversity of people ha who have access to these models, who can create these models, in some sense, a compensation model is only, it's not going to actually give anybody any meaningful compensation. And it's going to hire the bar in order for you to get into making stuff. It's not clear, like, what is the, like, what are the benefits that you're really getting out of that? So it's um, something for people to think about. Yeah, and I, I think it's a great point because I think this is where the uh, incentives and interests of like, you know, a huge uh, content creator versus an individual artist really differ here, right? Because if you're on the side of like, you know, someone who already aggregates a lot of this these content and you can form like a brand new revenue stream and you kind of have the resources to assert these things already, then it makes a lot of sense to try to go out and get this you know, ruling in your favor. Um, but if you're kind of an individual and then, you know, yeah, you might get this ruling, but then you to practically make that, you know, become actual, you know, dollars in the pocket, you're gonna need to join probably some very large organization and, you know, it's a minor contribution in something very large. So in some ways, like this is where, um, you know, maybe the new law or something interesting can come out of this because you know, if we, uh, one of the meaning, one of the important questions that I think is worth asking as we develop these new tools is what is the ultimate impact on society, right? And if we're ultimately impacting a lot of individuals who, you know, formerly had good jobs, you know, were creating, you know, well-being off of this, but then suddenly they're disrupted, that's, that has like huge social ramifications. So, uh, and sometimes those ramifications are things that only like that's the kind of the role of government to kind of think about these things uh, and to address them in like a you know a way in which you know society can get on board with. Um, so you can see how like you know you, this kind of brings it back to like the the original point of like why this technology is so important is because it has the ability to change like our fundamental assumptions on like who is you know creating value and where that value aggregates. Uh, in our society, and that has big impacts, uh, you know, across the board. I think that's an absolutely fascinating place to sort of leave our conversation about input for now. Um, I want to go ahead and shift gears for a moment and talk about AI outputs. How do creations from models like ChatGPT and MidJourney challenge our understanding of copyright? Yeah, so it challenges our conception of what it takes to be an author, or at least it requires us to pay attention to what we think it means to be the author of a work in a way that we maybe haven't really been thinking about for a very long time. So the one of the examples that's often given is the is the camera and photography, which when uh, cameras first came out, there was a similar response, which was that you are not, there's no human author of these works. These photos are not copyrightable because it's this machine that's doing all the work, right? To transfer the thing with the light and image into this thing. Like you aren't really that involved. You're pushing like, you know, there's, it was a little bit more complicated back then, but essentially for now you're pushing a button and that's all that you're doing. Uh, there's no human author here, right? And it took time for people to think that actually, no, we are using the, the camera is a tool that is used by people in order to for them to create their own kinds of art uh, or works, basically, uh, and it has their that there is some amount of creative expression in it. So that's what happened with photography, 
And then we saw over time that the uh, decisions on photography cases became more and more, I would say, lax in a certain sense, right? So on the very first case where the Supreme Court said that uh, photographs can are can be copyrightable and that the particular photograph at issue was protected, a picture of Oscar Wilde, Wilde they went into detail about all of the creative decisions that were made by the photographer that were that were expressed in the final work all right lots of things he set up the what was being worn where the drapes were all the basically setting up the composition of the image uh lots those kinds of questions like trying to evoke a certain kind of feeling right there's a lot of discussion about the human contribution there but today, right, we've gone, so that makes sense, right? Because you're trying in the early days to justify why copyright extension, why copyright can constitutionally extend to photographs. But over time, when people were less uh, freaked out by photo photography, more and more cases were basically saying like, it, the default ex expectation was that you are the author of the photos that you make, right? And you are seeing cases where people are, there's a copyright in works where you're like, is there human expression in this work? Like where is the human expression in this work, right? Because as an example, wildlife photographers, right? Wildlife photographers often set up motion detectors, things, in order for pictures of animals to happen at night when they are not there. Because A, who wants to be there in the middle of the night? And B, who really wants to be there taking a picture of a lion in the middle of the night, right? So there are lots of reasons why they do this, but that's what they have. And they set it up and then they take the image and the images are often like really awesome. And then they register those works and say that they are the author of those works. But if you think about it and you ask yourself, well, copyright extends to original works of authorship and there has to be some kind of modicum of, of your, the author's expression in that work. The question is like, what is the expression that is present in those works, right? The human wasn't there. Maybe that's not a big deal because they set certain kinds of parameters like they decided what like what filter was going to be on the image or where they were going to place the camera right you you kind of have to stretch to see like what those would be and the interesting thing about generative ai the use of generative ai is that in some sense they're doing these artists are doing way more than many many professional photographers are doing in terms of the creative piece, right? It's it's a huge amount of work in order to set up all of this stuff in the middle of wherever you want to take these pictures. But copyright does not ex does not protect, at least in theory, like your the sweat of the brow idea, right? It's the idea that you worked really hard and therefore you get a copyright. That is not a reason. That is not a sort of part of the test. It's just, is there copyrightable expression in this work? Yes or no. And so going back to the generative AI situation, we have a, a client, Chris Castanova, where we submitted an application for a work, uh, I wanna say recently, but now it's been quite a bit of time. I think it was like in March or something like this, where we went and put forward all of the different settings that Chris was able to set in order to generate the ultimate image. And that image, so that included putting in a sketch of a picture and setting a bunch of these parameters using uh, this thing called control nets, which gives you uh, unsurprisingly given the name, more control over the output. So if you think about all of those decisions, like all of that kind of the, the creative decisions that were made on that front end there, and you compare that to the kinds of creative decisions that photographers are making on the front end of what they're doing, it's hard to see uh, much of a difference, 
right? It's, it's actually, it's harder to see why the photography gets copyright protection versus I think a lot of these generative AI images, not in all cases, but, but that's the same with photography, right? You might think like when you and I push the button on our phones in order to take an image, uh, 8,000 images that, uh, we're probably not, it shouldn't be copyrighted. Uh, but, but it probably is. And so similarly, you could have a, a, a similarly nuanced view about authorship for generative AI images, but the problem is it's hard to do that because when you look to register a work, in historically, the Copyright Office does not look with a lot of detail at what you were doing, right? They're not doing like a case-by-case -case serious analysis of each work in the way that you see patents being analyzed. But it would maybe would be required in order for you to do what you what the correct outcome might be from a copyright sort of black letter law perspective. Uh, but that's not what happens with photography, and that's that is probably not able to be really done in in the generative AI context either. So, so that's sort of where we are at is figuring out what are we going to think an author is today, and how I think will the decision on these cases impact decisions that we've already made historically using other technology like cameras, um, and yeah, what we think it means to be an author. It's just it's not uh, it's not very clear. <laughs> Sort of given all the things we've talked about today and the rapid progression of this kind of technology, where do you anticipate copyright law heading? How's it going to adapt or transform in the coming years? I think I think it's it's very it's always very tempting when new technology comes in to say, okay, we need the law is old, it needs to change. We need to like you know flip it in some other way. Um, but I think our you know, over, you know, over time, or at least, you know, how copyright has been interpreted in the courts, people, like, in the grand scheme of things, it seems like we've done a decent job of kind of interpreting copyright law in general as it kind of evolves over time. And it has, like, core principles that I think are long-term principles um, that I think will still be true even with when there's new technology. So I feel like it's, it's trying to understand how copyright law can be applied, like understand those same foundational principles to a new technology rather than necessarily writing a new law entirely, unless it kind of, unless the kind of interpretation ultimately comes out to something that's so harmful that, you know, Congress will need to step in um, and kind of change the law effectively. Um, but that's kind of my interpretation of it. Like, it's very hard to, like, you know, the, the pace of technology is just so fast. It's hard to even know what, you know, the next year of generative AI will look like. So I can't imagine, like, being able to write a law, right, that's supposed to govern the next, you know, generation of new technology. Um, so I almost rather stick to existing principles to offer some level of predictability rather than, you know, blindly casting uh, a net into what we think the future will hold. So what I would say is that, I guess there's a couple things I would say. One is we have a recent decision in uh, Reuters v. Ross, which was a case that was uh, first brought, I think it was in 2020, and just recently had uh, mostly what you just say is a denial of summary judgment to both sides. And in that decision by the court, you got to see some of the early analysis from a court's perspective of the fair use uh, question with respect to training training a model, basically scraping data off of, of, of site and then using that to train a model. And I think it was pretty favorable to fair use. 
And so I think that if that's sort of what reflective of what's going to be happening in the future, I think it would be, we should expect that fair use will cover uh, a lot of training. So I think that's, I, that's probably the direction that we will be going in. Uh, and I think that the court did a good job analyzing the, the factors in that, in that case. On the output side, I think it's much more, I'm sort of very curious to see what, what happens because I think it's a super difficult question. And I think that it's not really clear what a good solution is for the reasons I gave before, because of the decisions that we've already made in other areas where we use technology to create works and how that's going to apply here. In some sense, it seems reasonable to say that if you basically just push a button, that you're not going to be the author of a thing that just comes out when you push a button. And it also seems to be true that when you're exercising a huge amount of this control, making the creative decisions that then are reflected in that work that you should be. So finding out where that line is going to be. And I think the difficult part is how you draw this line, given the fact that the Copyright Office does not have the resources to do a sort of thorough kind of analysis that you might need in order for that case by case determinations to really be happening. Um, I think that that's going to result in I think it's more likely than not, I guess what I will say, that ultimately copyright protection does extend to works created using generative AI tools, as in the delta between what you put in and the output in many cases will be protected. And I think that's because of the same sort of pragmatic things that motivated the change and the expansion of protection in photography. And I think the fact that you have a lot of very interested uh, parties who have a decent amount of power in the United States about in media, who are very interested in and have been already using these kinds of technologies uh, in, in works like movies where they've invested tons of money. And so their interests are very much aligned uh, with those of others who want to make sure that those works are protected by copyright. And so it would be pretty surprising to me if in the end they did not sort of, the Copyright Office did not move into that direction but it's but i but it, we will have to wait and see thank you heather and thank you david for sharing your invaluable insights with us today uh, this is obviously a very complex and intricate issue and i hope that our discussion today kind of underscores the evolving nature and challenges it presents uh, for our listeners, we hope this episode has shed light on some of the nuances of this issue and its implications for copyright law. As we look to the future, the intersection of technology and legal frameworks will only become more intertwined. It's essential to stay informed. Thank you for tuning in to the BTLJ podcast. Thank you for listening. The BTLG podcast is brought to you by podcast editor Eric Ahern, Julia Dripper, and Meg O'Neill. Our executive producer is BTLG senior online content editor Linda Chen, BTLG's editor-in-chief Will Casper and Yuhan Wu. If you enjoy our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, write us at vtlgpodcast at gmail.com. This interview was recorded on October 30th, 2023. The information presented here does not constitute legal advice. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. <laughs>